Well, church family, before we open up the word of God together, let's uh, bow once more so that we may prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the word of God and that the spirit of God would be unhindered uh, as he teaches us and guides us in all truth. So let's bow once more. Father, you have truly done so much for us that uh, as we've sung, it, uh, you've paid a debt through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we could never afford, never pay. And Father, we're thankful for that because it is through Christ's righteousness that we have uh, access to you, Father. Uh, that we are clothed in a righteousness not our own, that we have the ability to raise our voices as those who have been spiritually been, been reborn. Uh, that we're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, and, but instead we are alive because of Christ. Uh, Christ in us, Christ with us, uh, the one who goes before us, who is our advocate. Uh, and Lord, we thank you for those truths today. We thank you for being alive spiritually, that we can live the Christian life, that uh, we need not fear death, uh, we need not fear sin, we need not fear our enemy any longer because uh, he has already been judged. You've been victorious uh, over him, over sin and death itself. Uh, And Father, we thank you for all those things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. And by way of introduction, as we take a look uh, at this section, uh, which takes us from verse 1 of chapter 2 to verse 10, Uh, As I told you, uh, each one of these uh, three sermons, uh, the third being next Sunday, uh, all dovetail together, all tie together uh, as we see us being um, from being spiritually dead to God to being made spiritually alive in Christ as a testimony to God's grace and kindness. Uh, And so I'd like to begin by actually reading, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2 for our context Because it's very important for us to see this transition that's going to happen at the beginning of verse 4. So follow along as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful reality to know that we were once a a spiritual corpse, that we were corrupt because of our disobedience to God's law, that we were held captive by the prince of the power of the air, that everything that defined us was living a life of carnality fulfilling the desires of the sinful flesh, the desires of the, of the sinful eyes, uh, and the pride in possessions, and were common like all the rest of mankind. So you're either in one or two uh, camps, one or two kingdoms, 
as it were, in relation to God. You're either in darkness, in sin, dead in your trespasses and sins, you know, devoid of any spiritual life whatsoever, or you're in God's kingdom, which is represented by light because that light shows us the reality of who we are before the, sin, the sinless God of all. So either one or the other. And Paul here in, in chapter 2 paints this, this picture of this reality so that we as believers in Jesus Christ, because remember the audience, it is to the saints that are in Ephesus. So this is written to believers so that you too may know who you were apart from God, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, and what characterized you as an individual. But then in verse 4, we see something beautiful transpire. We see something that beautiful be communicated by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit. Two words that not only give us what salvation is all about, but who salvation comes from, two words that transform those who are spiritually dead to those who are spiritually alive through faith and trust in Christ. Two words, but God. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because you were all, every one of us were verses 1 to 3, in its entirety, a corpse, corrupt, captive, carnal, and common. But God. Let that sink in for a moment. But God. Who's the subject here? It's God. It's not man. It doesn't say but man. It doesn't say but I. Because you have nothing to do in relation to your salvation. There is nothing you have to offer to God that will qualify you to be holy and righteous as God is. Because remember, you are spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. You are all those things that you once walked according to the course of this world. You are under the, the power of the prince of the air, which is Satan himself. You lived according to that lifestyle. You were natural in your thinking, and everything spiritual was something that you wanted nothing to do with. See, these two words, but God, communicate an eternal truth, that apart from God, there is no salvation. And shows God reaching down through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a powerful and profound way. See, we have no claim on God. We cannot say back to God, well, God, you know what? I'm really not that bad of an individual. God, there, there has to be something in the, even maybe the dark recesses of my heart that is there that you, you can somehow or I can somehow water in and get, make sure that it has just enough of a, a good you know, uh, culture or a good um, set of parameters that are going to uh, encourage that good to grow. There's got to be something. And see, the scriptures are not silent on this because there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks for God. See, the sin nature defines us. The sin nature is what we are all about apart from God. So man cannot say that he has a claim over God to say, God, well, you know what, if you just understood, 
if you could just see things as I see them. And see, the thing is, is what we start to do is we start to, you know, create a God of our own making. Because all of a sudden we begin to think that we know more than God. That salvation really, you know, God, it's great that you want it to be your way. But you know what? I have a say in this. No, you don't. Because salvation was before the foundation of the world itself. Were you there when God created? Were you there when God said, let there be light? No. Only God existed. And therefore, as we think about salvation, you know, there's no but man. No but I. See, we are the offender. We are the ones that broke God's law. And see, the interesting thing about an offender is that they are a rebel to their core. And that is all we are apart from God. As slaves to sin and as those who choose to, to, to sin willfully. And only God, the one who has been offended because his law has been broken, can reconcile us to himself. See, because the, the fact is, is that the offender, no matter what they say, no matter how they package it, no matter how they go about trying to make things right, can do nothing to make things right. Only the offended, which in this case, in our subject matter, is God himself. Only God can offer and provide forgiveness. And see, when we see that in its true light, then we understand that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing we have to offer that is going to cause God to say, that's enough. It only and forever can be Jesus Christ, God's son. Because he is the only one who can provide forgiveness because he is the one whose law we have transgressed. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans chapter 5 actually, you know, packages this very well and, and just continues to give us this same theme. as It says there in verse 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see? But God. Salvation belongs to God because we were still weak and we were still sinners in the presence of a holy God. So what can those that are weak and sinners, those who are the offenders, do to make things right with the one who has been offended? So God in his wisdom says that this is my law because I am the eternal, holy, righteous, just God. Because I am the creator, because I am the sustainer, I say how things are. And he always does that in a way which is glorious. You know, God does not do things halfway. God doesn't do things, you know, off the cuff. Because he is a God of order. And he has had a plan since the beginning. That while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ came to die for the ungodly. See, the ungodly are you and me. G- 
Jesus being the Savior. So Paul says, but God, the next phrase is being rich in mercy. Mercy is God forgiving us and reserving punishment that we deserve, that you and I deserve because of our rebellion against God, because we are the offenders, because we've offended the holy God of all. He reserves that punishment and placed it upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the thing is, God's wrath has to be appeased because of sin, because he is holy, because he is just, because he is right. And so that, that wrath on sin has to go somewhere. And for those who believe, guess what? It is on Jesus Christ, God's son. So when Christ hung on that cross, he took your punishment for sin for every believer here this morning. Otherwise, God's wrath has to have a place somewhere else. So if it's not on his son for salvation to those who believe, then it has to be upon those who are the offenders, those who have offended God, and them giving, being given their just deserts, the wrath that they deserve because they have offended God himself. They are the offenders. And so that punishment is, the wages of sin is what? Death. And that death means separation for God, it means going to a place of torment and punishment for all of eternity. Something that each one of us deserves without question, without qualification. But God, being rich in mercy. The psalmist, uh, David actually, in Psalm 51, understood this very profoundly as he cries out to God. After committing adultery with Bathsheba, after having Uriah killed on the battlefield, after trying to hide and cover up everything that he did, when he is brought to the, the reality, when he is brought face to face with what he, do, he had done, listen to what he says in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, David saw his sin as God sees his sin. And the desire of his heart at that point as you know, one that, that the scriptures say is a man after God's own heart was to see his sin as God saw his sin and to realize that it was against God and God alone that he had sinned. Have mercy on me, O God. Forgive me. Don't punish me for what I did, even though I deserve it. Matter of fact, Lord, in your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Take it away so all that imagery of the things that I said and the things that I did and the things that happened as a result of those actions would be no more. See, that's what someone who has their spiritual eyes open and understands the two words, but God. who is rich in mercy, can do something that no amount of penance, no amount of doing good, no amount of living a, you know, a good and upright life in relation to the, the people of this world can ever accomplish. 
And notice the word. It doesn't say that he's just merciful. He's rich in mercy. So in other words, as we think about God being rich in mercy, it means that it's abounding. It is overflowing. My sins are many, but your mercy is more. Just what we sung about this morning. And we know because God is is infinite, because he is eternal, and every attribute that we speak of in relation to who God is, God is mercy. He's infinitely and eternally merciful. He's rich in it. There is is no point at which God's going to run out of mercy, because that, that means he would cease to be God. But do know this. That, yes, your sins are many, and his mercy is more, is not permission, not liberty, not a, uh, a reason to go around sinning just because God's mercy is more. That's not what it is communicating there. What it's communicating is, is in relation to our need of salvation, in relation to what we deserve as sinners before a holy God, that God chose to be merciful and to provide the perfect Lamb of God, to take away our sin. And that's something we should never forget, we should never minimize. You know, we oftentimes quote, you know, um, God's mercies are new every morning. Well, that comes out of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, which the book of Lamentations uh, was most likely written after 586 B.C. in the fall of Jerusalem. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, one of the attributes that we think of is God's long-suffering, the fact that, you know, he desires all to be saved, that the fact that Christ has not returned means that there are those that need to believe today. Because great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every day. His mercies do not come to an end. But know this, there is a day of reckoning coming. Where the judge of all, in his wrath upon sin, is going to have to finally be settled for all time and for eternity. And like I said, it's either on Jesus Christ for those who believe, or it is upon each and every individual that rejects God and receives the just deserts of their rebellion, their offense against a holy God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So we've talked about God's mercy, which is God showing or giving forgiveness and reserving punishment for Christ, for those who believe. We also see that it's because of God's great love with which he loved us. Hear me for the next moment. Because this is where we have a tendency to superimpose ourselves upon God. Or say even our culture or even religious circles will impose upon God. God did not love us because we were lovable or desirable. There is nothing lovable or desirable about sin. 
Because if you take for a moment and can be just like King David when he realized his sin before God. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. He saw his uncleanness. He saw just how awful and ugly that sin was before God. So you need to remember the context. Because this verse is in context of the fact that each one of us are spiritual corpses full of corruption and carnality under the prince of the power of the air. And as we see God's love being exercised because of his great love for us with which he loved us, it shows you how great that love is. Because God loved the unlovable. He loved the undesirable. He loved those who had offended him in the worst way by breaking his law. And see, that's what makes everything as we sung today about his amazing grace, which we'll speak of here in just a moment. We see God being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, a great love and a mercy that we do not deserve. We deserve God's judgment. But because of God's love, he showed that rich mercy upon us who do not deserve. The unlovable, the undesirable. But it doesn't stop there. Because verse 5 goes on to say that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even when you were dead or we were dead in our trespasses. See, again, when you begin to see the reality of who you were and what God did in Christ, it will affect how you think and what you say and what you do. And if if the things that are sinful and the things that that characterize this world do not trouble you when you're brought face-to-face with them, then chances are you're not regenerate. You haven't been reborn. See, this shows the heart of David. Have mercy on me, O God. I know I have sinned against you. Make it as if it didn't happen, because every time I think about it, it reminds me of how sinful and how awful I am, apart from your grace and your love and your mercy. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's you and me. That he, so who's the he? Jesus. So that Jesus might bring us to God. So who's doing the bringing here? Jesus is. See, only Jesus can bring us to God. Only Jesus can give us a righteousness not our own. Only Jesus saves. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, that goes from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. You know, there's not an ounce, there's not a nuance of of spiritual life in there, like I said, that can be cultivated and can eventually blossom. Now, you have to be reborn. And just like you have no control over your initial physical birth, you know, I don't remember consulting, you know, and telling God what to do when I came into the world. 
I didn't even know what was going on. I don't even remember the first, you know, four years of my life. But just like I don't control my, my physical birth, I do not control my spiritual birth. They belong to God, the one who is almighty, omnipotent. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul you know, goes on to, to show what this transition looks like. He says, from now on, therefore, we do not regard, uh, or we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. See, that's who we were before in the natural state, and everything pertaining to Christ was foolishness to us, because we were spiritually dead. We regard him thus no longer. Well, why do you not regard him that way anymore? Because your spiritual eyes have been opened. You've been made spiritually alive in Christ. You can now see your sin as God sees your sin, and you can see your need of a Savior. You, need, you can see your need of redemption to be made right with God so that you're no longer his enemy, no longer at odds with him, no longer repulsive, like decaying flesh, spiritual zombies before God. Therefore, Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, so as a result of that reality, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this, God doesn't just come in and, and you know, put a fresh coat of paint on our spirituality because it really wasn't all that bad. It just needed to be spruced up. No. See, God had to come in and, and change everything. He had to take and, and, and literally perform spiritual surgery to remove everything to put in there a new creation, to start anew. This was not a simple, you know, slight re- renovation. Like you give a new, you know, facelift to your kitchen or to a room of your house or maybe even change how you, you look physically. This is not what it's talking about. It's, it's talking about a complete transformation from something, you know, from one thing to another. Because there's nothing that God uh, needs to work with or can work with in relation to our, uh, our lives apart from him. He needs to bring an entirely new work in altogether. See, the only way that spiritually dead people can fellowship with the living God is to have God resurrect them. See, that's why the resurrection of Jesus is, is important. Just as important as his death and his burial, but even so much so, his resurrection. Because that means that there is victory over sin. Christ is not in the grave. He is not dead. He is alive. Amen. See, God needs to regenerate or rebirth us. This is why he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because as we read in the Gospel of John, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. See, the two do not intertwine. And there's nothing from the, the, the physical you know, sinfulness that we can bring in that's going to add to or complement or be a part of that new work that God does through Christ. Because otherwise, then we don't need a Savior. Because we can you know, potentially make it be a work of our own. And guess what we'll do as a result of that? And we'll find a little bit later, boast about it. 
Matter of fact, we'll find that out next week. So even when you were dead in your trespasses, made, a lot, or made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. See, here we have another component as we take a look at salvation. We, we've seen God's mercy. We've seen God's love, which his love you know, is an, uh, shown through his mercy. But we also see God's love in his grace. That's why it's amazing grace, because it comes from a great love and a mercy from the God of all to put upon himself or put upon his son our sin. See, both mercy and grace and love, all all these things function together to bring about salvation because it's God's work. It is a spiritual work because God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth. And the physical body and and the physical things of this world do not even understand or have any capacity whatsoever to worship the God who's spirit. That's why he has to come in and, and rebirth. And grace is simply, by definition, unmerited favor of God towards those who are sinners. Unmerited. That means you cannot earn it. There's nothing that you can do to, you know, coax God to, God, give me, give me some of your grace. Know this, you cannot manipulate God. You don't tell God how it is. You do not have a claim on God. God tells us how things are. Because they're based in who he is. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved bringing us to verse 6, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are able to be raised up and seated with God Almighty all because of Jesus Christ. He's the one that qualifies us. He's the one that clothes us. It is his righteousness. There is a spiritual resurrection from the spiritual death that we found ourselves in. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 11 because there is a a beautiful physical resurrection that happens as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But I think there are some good parallels that we can see that, you know, shed light even on our spiritual resurrection. John chapter 11, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 38. Then Jesus... Deeply moved again. So deeply moved again because a few verses earlier, we we know that Jesus wept because Lazarus was a good friend. But see, there's a reason why Jesus did not come immediately to heal him while Lazarus was still alive. Because, and we're going to read right here the why. He was deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against him. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, no, it doesn't say partially alive, he's dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet uh, bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So permit me for just a couple of minutes to point out a few things. Now, Lazarus, who was in the tomb, as the scripture says, was a dead man. He had been dead for four days. So Lazarus didn't all of a sudden decide that his physical death, he had had enough with that, and that he was starting to smell and said, well, you know what, I probably should you know, get up and walk out of this tomb and go freshen myself up because I'm getting, beginning to even reek to my own nose. No, because he was physically dead. There was no physical life in Lazarus. And he had been in the grave for four days where there was an odor. His body had begun to decay. And one of the results of sin before a holy God is physical death. And we know that these frail shells are dying each and every day. And they're beginning to not function as they used to. Things break. Things don't work anymore. But see, it wasn't because Lazarus had decided to come out of the tomb because he stunk or because he was tired of being in that tomb for four days. And you think about the odor of what that physical represents. We talked about us being, you know, spiritual corpses. See, our sin stinks. We have an odor about us that is, uh, it fills the nostrils of God with anything but a wonderful fragrance. It reeks. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Well, what is the glory of God? Well, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, showing his power even over death itself, physical death. And he would be showing them that he also had victory over spiritual death as well when he was raised from the dead himself. But see, they had an opportunity to see the glory of God, to see Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And when he does it so that they all, those standing around, scratching their heads and saying, you know what, Jesus, what are you doing? You know, Lazarus reeks. He's been in the grave for four days. What, what could you possibly do that is going to change his set of circumstances? I've been around dead bodies before. He's four days dead. There's nothing we can do. But see, he's the son of God who has power over physical death because he is the creator of life. And he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, was there any hesitation? Did Lazarus, you know, decide that, you know what, I I really don't want to come out. I kind of like it in here. You know, I'm I'm all wrapped up nice in my, you know, uh, my snuggly wraps and I just don't want to come out. No. He had nothing to say in relation to this because God's son, Jesus Christ, said, Come forth, Lazarus, and the power of Almighty God cannot be thwarted. And so if God says, Come forth, guess what? You're coming forth. 
And in 1975, God did the same thing to me spiritually. He said, Bill, come forth. Come forth out of your deadness of sin and be alive in Christ. So just like Jesus, you know, called forth out of that tomb, Lazarus' physical body is exactly what he does when he calls out someone spiritually and brings them to spiritual life. Nothing is going to stop it, and it's the very best thing for us. And notice, it says, the man who had died, and I love that they added that little thing in there. They want to make sure Lazarus was dead. This is not him just, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know, faking death. He was dead. Came out, his hands and his feet were bound, and he had strips of linen cloth wrapped around his eyes or his head. Well, think about who we are when we're spiritually dead. We're slaves to sin. We are bound, hands and feet, and our eyes are blind to everything that's spiritual. And what did Jesus say? Unbind him, let him go. And just like Jesus said that to him physically, because he was physically bound, is exactly what happens when God calls us to salvation, is that the things that bound our hands, that bound our feet, that bound our minds and our eyes, are no longer in charge. Because we've been made alive. And so everything that bound us uh, in our sin, that chain of slavery is broken. So we're raised up with him in a spiritual resurrection. As we can see, it parallels to the physical resurrection. But also we're seated uh, with him in heavenly places in Christ. See, believers are no longer captive to the prince of the power of the air. Instead, what happens is we share in the exaltation of Jesus Christ and we await the day. We await the day when we will get our glorified bodies and be resurrected to glorify God and enjoy him forever. No longer being bound by or affected by sin at all. 100% righteous inside and out. I like what John MacArthur said in relation to this passage here in John 11. I think it's worth noting. It says, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, his first instruction was, unbind him and let him go. A living person cannot function while wrapped in the trappings of death. We are no longer of this present world or in its sphere of sinfulness and rebellion. We have been rescued from spiritual death and given spiritual life in order to be in Christ and to be with him in the heavenly places. So do you see the change, the transition, the transformation that has taken place? So much so that we are, we're no longer like what we used to be. Natural, spiritually dead, but instead we are now those who have spiritual eyes that are alive in Christ. We have a spiritual life, which we did not have apart from Christ. From death to life, from darkness to light. So how should this inform our lives today? Well, when I think about everything that has transpired in relation to salvation from 
verses 1 to 3 to verses 4 to 6, and we're going to do 7 to 10 next week, and we're going to see the entire package come together. But when I think about this and, and, and speaking to uh, those who know Christ today, if you're seated here and you've put your faith and trust in Christ, the call is for you today. Are you still allowing the things of this world to bind you in some way, to bind your hands or your feet, to keep you from doing what you should be doing as someone who is redeemed, someone who's been freed from that? Do you see the power of God in Christ? Do you see his mercy and what it accomplished? Do you see his love and what it accomplished? Do you see his grace and what he accomplished? See, part of why we do the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ is so we don't forget And the thing is, is life distracts us from remembering that we have been loved by the God who created us. That he showed his mercy upon us. That he he exercised grace upon us. Instead of giving us what we deserve immediately, without question. Because we deserve it. We experience the love of God. The mercy of God. The grace of God, not because we deserve it. Because remember, is there anything that is lovable about sin? No. But God. But God. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, this is why Paul penned this, is so that we could see exactly what uh, Isaac Watts penned in 1707, which is directly from the word of God. It's for us to understand and see that it is a love so amazing because it is a great love From God Almighty. It is so divine because it is the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God that offered Himself so that you and I can go from spiritual death to spiritual life to be alive in Christ. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Now, I don't know about you, and we haven't sung when I survey the Runner's Cross lately. But can you sing those words with conviction to know that love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all? Well, see, the thing is, is that we still allow the trappings of this world to to suck us in like a vortex when what we should be doing is looking heavenwardly. I don't believe that's a word. Heavenward. How about that? There are things that you need to give to God. 
that you're holding like this because you're saying that this is off limits to God. How dare we do that for a love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So if you're here this morning and maybe there's something that you are not giving to God, maybe some aspect of your life, something that you, you do just because it's what you've always done. Or maybe you've slowly started slipping in and allowing, you know, the things of this world or other things to pull you away from the reality of who you are in Christ. Today is the day that you surrender that back to God and say, God, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's bow for a closing word of prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your great love with which you loved us, for your rich mercy, and for your amazing grace, without which no one would be saved, no one would be able to be in your presence at all. Father, we thank you that You saved a wretch like me, who was once lost but now is found, was blind but now I see. Lord, may those words, as we think about them scripturally, as we think about the reality of who we are in Christ, empower us to give us the strength to give you every aspect of our lives, no matter how much Uh, credence we give to it or not, there are areas in our lives that we need to surrender and give to you. And may your spirit do that great work in each one of us to draw us closer to you so that we may walk as those that are in the light, not in the darkness, not hiding our light under a bushel, but on the, the, the hilltop. No matter what that means, knowing that as a result of living in the light that we will be ridiculed, we will be made fun of, because in the natural man, it's foolishness. So, Father, we ask that your spirit would do a mighty work in bringing people to salvation, that you would reach down into other lives like you've reached down into ours. And may we be the tools by which you uh, utilize as your ambassadors, as your light in darkness, because we are fulfilling the great command to go and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, even uh, to the end of the age. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.